0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
1: So, what we do every morning is we blow up a disco record that we hate?
0: Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week. Disco sucks. Disco sucks. Disco Today, the death of disco. Oddly, it all traces back to a baseball stadium in Chicago. And the life of Lefty, the odd limb with a mind of its own and a will of steel. Stay with us.
2: The winner is...
0: Isaac Hayes. village people. The yeah. village people. night. And
3: the winner is the Bee Gees and the winner is,
4: alright, Donna Summer.
0: If you didn't grow up with disco, it might be hard to imagine just how powerful that driving, pulsing, hot stuff, ring my bell, boogie oogie oogie was. It sucked you onto the dance floor with a magnetic force and didn't let you go until you wrung out your shirt and kicked off your platform shoes. The fashions were ridiculous, the decor so tacky, and that's the way, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, we liked it. And then one evening in Chicago, a publicity event inadvertently changed all that. Here's Pat Walters with Disco Demolition Night.
1: It's a makeup game. It rained earlier in the year, and we lost a game with Detroit, so this is a makeup game. It's a four series. We're at
5: Comiskey now. Park on the south side of Chicago, and the White Sox are playing a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. The place was
3: packed. They completely sold out the stadium, and there were another 20,000 people wandering around in the street trying to get in. There were that many people who couldn't even get in. Yeah, yeah.
5: They were, ever, they were climbing the drain pipes. This is Paul Natkin. He was there that night but he wasn't there for the baseball game. Nobody was really there for the baseball game. They were there for this promotion that was being put on by a big rock radio station in town
3: called The Loop. If you brought a disco record, you got in for 98 cents.
5: Now, the thing you have to understand is, disco was everywhere that summer. The station said, bring your Anita Ward, your sister Sledge, your Donna Summer, Bring all the disco music you can find so that we can destroy it.
3: Disco sucks! Disco
5: sucks! This was supposed to be a wacky stunt, but it ended up becoming something so much bigger than that. It became this
3: huge thing. Front page of the Sun-Times, front page of the Tribune. It made worldwide news. It's a trivial pursuit question.
5: This week, we're going back to this night where 50,000 people showed up to a baseball game in Chicago to rage against disco music. We've spent the past several months sifting through the craziness of that night, trying to make sense of what happened. We found out a lot, and along the way, we came across a guy named Vince Lawrence, an usher at the game, whose story shows how this night connects to so much of the music we listen to today. To get things going, here's Vince, the usher.
6: Well, when I got there, you know,
5: we set up at the gates as usual, and there were lines around the block. And there's... Vince was 15 that summer, and he'd gotten a job with this company that provided ushers to big venues in Chicago. Take a guy to his seat, watch the concert. Not a bad job. He'd gotten to see
6: lots of shows. ABBA, Michael Jackson, KISS, um, the Funk Fest at Soldier Field. I saw the Rolling Stones with this
5: um, incredible guy, Prince, opening for him. And this would have been amazing for any kid, but it was especially so for Vince, because he decided recently that he was going to be a musician. It had happened when his dad's friend took him to see this funk artist named Captain Sky, whose band had a synthesizer in it. And at that point, uh, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be the synthesizer guy. Which was a pretty new thing at the time. And that's why he took this usher job, to save money to buy his first synthesizer. So, on this night, it's not a concert, it's a baseball game. Or, it was supposed to be anyway. Vince is out at the front
6: gate. Taking tickets, watching records pile up at the gate. And I had strict intention of keeping disco records that I thought were good
5: that I didn't have. (laughs) So Vince is a disco fan, taking tickets at an anti-disco event. Which sounds like it'd be a real bummer. But Vince says he was actually really excited to be working that night. Because the DJ hosting the promotion was someone that he liked. I knew about Steve Dahl and Teenage Radiation, his band. And I thought that they were pretty cool. Steve Dahl is the DJ at The Loop, the big rock radio station that was putting on this promotion at the baseball game. And Vince says he had this band that did parodies of disco songs.
1: My name is Tony. Do you care to dance? No.
6: He did this cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. Which Vince noticed had
5: some synthesizer in it. So I was like, wow, you know, he's cool. He's he's a futurist just like me. But unlike Vince, Steve Dahl had been on this anti-disco crusade that summer, making fun of disco on his radio show, doing public appearances where he'd smash disco records over his head, and that night at the baseball game, his plan was to blow up all the disco records people brought to the stadium. But as Vince was sifting through these records as he was collecting them at the gate, he noticed something strange. A lot of them weren't actually disco
6: records. Well, there's Marvin Gaye records and Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, records that were black records. And I was like, you can't get in. To people who have tickets, because I'm like, this record isn't a disco record. You have to have a disco record to get in for a dollar.
5: But his boss came over and said no. He says, look, if they bring a record, if it's in that area, you got to let them in. Which Vince says he thought was weird, but at the time, he really didn't think that much of it. So, the first game starts. It's a doubleheader, so there's two games. And that first one is pretty uneventful. Diane White, another person who was in the crowd that night.
7: I I wouldn't say it was like a mood of riotousness during you know the game but after that first game ended things changed
3: this big door opened in center
5: field and the jeep rolled out that's paul napkin again
7: like a world war ii jeep with the top down you know where they had the canvas tops
5: and steve Dahl, the anti-disco dj was standing in the back shouting into a megaphone
7: hey
1: it's because of you that this is happening tonight okay not because of us we're merely a vehicle for your thoughts. Disco sucks.
7: Disco sucks. He was wearing his ROTC jacket and um, Hawaiian shirt. With the Army helmet. People are screaming and they're going nuts. And Steve Dahl pulls the Jeep up next to a dumpster.
4: Give it.
5: any sense of how many were in there? It was a big dumpster and it was full.
1: Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight, we got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good.
5: And this was the big moment that all those people had come to see that night.
1: You We're
4: going to count the three and then go boom. One, two, three,
7: boom. All of a sudden, there's like stuff shooting up in the air. Crowd goes out of their minds.
6: I was working the boxes along the third base line. We were very quickly overrun because there just weren't
5: enough of us.
7: They're, They're getting out of their seats and they're jumping onto the field. Thousands of people
5: storming the field. And at first, it all looks pretty fun. You see kids chasing each other around, sliding in the grass, climbing on each other's shoulders. I talked to this newspaper reporter named Dave Hoekstra who was there, who told me the owner was out on the field. And he was old, and he had a peg leg, and there's, there's stories he about— him. had a peg leg? Up, he, Yeah, yeah. He lost his leg in the war. And he kept getting stuck in the mud. The whole thing is like this zany,
7: real-life slapstick routine, until all of a sudden, it's just not. People started ripping up the bases the batting cages. All hell broke loose. All of a sudden you see a cloud of smoke. Right. What happened was that uh, they, they stormed the field and they set a bonfire in center field and they and people are dancing around it.
6: Yelling disco socks. There's a section behind the bullpen where some people
5: lit the um, seats on fire. The yeah, seats so in the stands on fire? Yeah.
6: Yeah. I was standing on the field with our uh, camera crew shooting this and it was one of the most horrifying sights you can imagine. Steve Dahl, the, the disc jockey, was nowhere to we found
2: uh, the game
1: delayed over two hours. Jim. Yes, what's the, what's the current situation? They
3: just canceled the second game.
6: the chief usher came to me and said, hey, they're telling us that we have to go home. They're calling the police to protect the park.
1: Police have actually set up barricades now to keep people out of the area of the stadium. Rosemarie Gully is there with a live report.
5: So at this point, Vince is just trying to get out of there.
6: And on my way to the locker room, there were just angry people running up to me, getting in my face, saying, disco sucks, disco sucks. And I
5: remember saying, hey, look at my shirt. He was wearing a T-shirt with the logo of The Loop, the rock station that had put on the event that night. And I had to show him, like, hey,
6: I'm not, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm not, you know, a bad person. Look at my shirt. Feeling like... Um, they thought I was disco. And a kid came up to me and took a 12-inch disc and broke it right in my face. It was like a Marvin Gaye 12-inch or something like that. And I didn't understand it till much later that, you know, that was just hate and that, um, they were directing it at me because I was black and
5: the record was black. I didn't get that at that time. By the end of the night, 39 people had been arrested. The cops even had to bring in horses. And this became a huge news story. And the pictures of it that went all around the world are disturbing. You see a crowd of thousands of white kids out on this field, smashing and burning records by primarily black artists. And to a lot of people who saw those images in the paper and watched them on television the next day, This didn't look like a wacky radio stunt.
4: It looked really, it looked a little scary to me, actually. It
5: looked really frightening. This is Renee Graham. She's a columnist for the Boston Globe who writes about music and culture. But when all this happened, she was a teenager.
4: What it reminded me of, even then, was I remember seeing films of these sort of white citizens councils in the 50s who disliked rock and roll. Now, what they really disliked is the fact that this was a music that was bringing together blacks and whites. Renee says the backlash against disco seemed similar. This wasn't just, oh, we don't like this music. This, was, this wasn't just that. This was, we don't like these people who listen to this music.
5: And to understand that, you really have to go back to the roots of disco, to June of 1969 in New York City. Renee says it all started in the wake of the riot at the Stonewall Inn when the cops started scaling back their raids on gay bars in the city.
4: It wasn't like the old days where the windows were blacked out and there was no name on the door and you had to know where it was. Suddenly, places were quite open. You know, I can remember going to one of the big, big clubs in the 70s downtown. I was probably, I don't know, 16 years old, so I really had no business being there anyway. And I wasn't, and I wasn't out. So going to those, those clubs was, I felt like I had I come home. As a gay woman of color,
5: these clubs became a safe place for Renee. And for lots of people, they called the clubs discos because everybody was dancing to records instead of a band. And at first, they were dancing to all different kinds of music—funk, soul, R&B. But then, in the early 1970s, a new style of music started coming out. This is Love Train. Came out in 1972 by a band called the OJ's. All over the world. It's one of the first disco songs. And Renee says she remembers hearing disco music and thinking... It was clearly different from
4: all the R&B and soul i have been listening to up to that point. It
5: had some elements of that
4: other music. You know, the bulk of the artists who were out there got their start singing in church. So these were church-trained voices. Big gospel-trained, you know, black voices. But it also pulled in all this other stuff. Salsa, which was really big in New York in the 1970s... Behind it, usually, you know, an orchestra.
5: A lot of percussion.
4: With the drums, it's like that hissing sound that. St- 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 st-
5: but the most defining
4: element, the thing that was new
5: and really set disco apart from the things before it, was the beat. You have to have,
4: say, 120 beats per minute. It was just a lot faster than music before that. It was sort of like R&B, but on steroids. They called it four on the floor, which just means
5: that the music was written in four-four time, four beats per measure, and where the drummer would hit the
4: bass drum on every single downbeat. You know, there was something about the propulsion of that sound that was really intoxicating. This beat was brand new, even though it's such a simple idea. And the thing about this beat is that it just made you dance. That was the thing different from a lot of the other music. You could sing along to other things, you could dance, but disco was built to be danced to. And
5: because of that, disco took over the gay dance clubs that were flourishing in New York and other big cities across the country, like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. And as it spread, the music got woven together with the movement for gay rights, for openness, for inclusivity. The music became the culture and by the mid-70s, disco had made it out of the gay clubs and into the homes of teenagers like Vince, the usher we talked to before. There was disco on the radio and disco in my house. This is Ring My Bell by Anita Ward, and it would later become one of Vince's favorite songs. The reason I remember that record so much
6: at that time was because it had that one syndrome sound.
5: Ooh. And I had learned how to make that sound at Captain Sky's rehearsals. Through 73, 74, and 75, the scene kept growing, but it didn't quite go mainstream. If you wanted to hear disco, you were listening to uh, the black radio stations. Nobody else was playing it. And then in
7: 1977, Hey, Tony! How you
5: doing? Okay. Saturday Night yeah. Fever comes out. And disco is everywhere.
4: Everyone was wearing polyester white suits and the Bee Gees were all you heard. Nothing against the Bee Gees. Like more and more Americans are getting more and more into the disco scene. It was this trendy thing, and suddenly people started flooding into discos who had never gone to discos before. This is the scene outside a New York disco called Studio 54. This it was almost like musical gentrification, if you will. <laughs> um, kind of pushing, you know, the pioneers and the originators out of the way and letting in all these new people who then decide it's their thing and that they created it. And not only was everybody listening to disco music,
5: everybody seemed to be making it, too. This is the Rolling Stones. Rod Stewart had a disco song. By the spring of 1979, there were 20,000 disco clubs in America nearly half the Grammy Awards that year went to disco music, and dozens of huge mainstream radio stations, stations that previously played rock music, switched formats to play disco 24 hours a day. So this is what's happening in 1979. And just a couple months later, The Loop and Steve Dahl hold their big event at Comiskey Park to destroy disco records. And Renee says that night's impact wasn't just about how scary it looked to her on TV. It was bigger than that.
4: Well, I mean, you know, after that, disco kind of becomes a four-letter word. People weren't getting played, people weren't getting booked, the records weren't selling as well. Renee says it happened shockingly fast. In
5: 1979, disco was everywhere, and by late 1980... Disco dies. That night at the baseball game became known as Disco Demolition Night. And over the years, a lot of people have said it's the night disco died.
2: It's like pulling the rug out from under you. You have to kind of rebalance. Okay, what are we going to do now? How do I stay afloat?
5: This is Janice Marie Johnson, and she had this band called Taste of Honey that had a big disco hit. Boogie, oogie, oogie. In 1978, the song had gone to number one on the pop, R&B, and disco charts. Sold two million copies. That summer, they were playing stadiums.
2: 80,000 people, outdoor concert, Chicago. Singing my song.
5: They won a Grammy Award for Best New Artist. 1978 was a great year for them.
2: Our second album was released in 1979, and I think it was July 12th, 1979, where they were burning disco records. And we had just had a new release categorized as disco. So how does that work for you, girls? (laughs) Not well.
5: By the end of that summer...
2: I'm noticing that the radio stations that I used to listen to have changed formats.
5: And it turned out this was happening all across the country.
2: Just like that. Disco is dying overnight. Taste of
5: Honey broke up in 1983, and Janice Marie switched careers.
2: I drove a limo. Would you believe that? People said, you can't drive a limo. I said, why not? What are you talking about?
0: That was the first half of Disco Demolition Night from the podcast Undone from Gimlet Media. Coming up after the break, host Pat Walters talks to DJ Steve Dahl, the man who some say killed disco. And you'll hear how the decline of disco meant the rise of a whole new kind of music. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. At Third Coast, we are constantly listening to podcasts, radio shows, everything we can get our ears on. And of all the stuff we hear, we share the very best with you. Let's get back to the day the music died, Disco Demolition Night.
1: Well, it was, uh, December 24th,
5: 1978. This is Steve Dahl, the DJ who some people say killed disco music. He's in his 60s now, still making radio in Chicago. And he says disco demolition night all got started because of this crappy thing that happened to him the Christmas before that summer.
1: I had been down on Wacker Drive dressed as Santa. Live broadcasting from down on the street. We had a studio on the third floor, so we would just drop a mic out the window. End of the day. Came back upstairs, and uh, they said, hey, uh, Jack wants to see you. Jack was the general manager of the station, Jack Minkow. Uh, walked into his office, and he had an automatic door closer. Apparently, this used to be a thing. He uh, he hit the, uh, hit the automatic door closer. And when that happened, when the door closed behind you, automatically you knew something bad was going to happen to you. So he informed me that the station was changing their format to disco. Effective that night. So I I, I drove home in my Santa suit and
5: walked in and told my wife that, uh, you know, I didn't have a job. Steve had actually just moved to Chicago and now he was fired and he blamed it on disco. Steve says before that Christmas Eve firing, he didn't have any strong feelings about the music at all. He wasn't even really that into music, he was a talk guy. Ranted about the news, told stories about his life. And he was kind of a shock jock. He made fun of stuff in pop culture. But after Steve got fired from a station that had turned to disco, the music became one of his main targets. Steve hated that rock artists like Rod Stewart were making disco songs. He thought it was phony, like Stewart was just cashing in on a trend. So he started that band, Teenage Radiation, What's to make fun of disco.
1: I kind of made fun of the Tony Manero and the Saturday
5: Night Fever lifestyle with the white three-piece
1: suit and, mm-hmm.
5: and all that. And when he got a new job on the radio, which happened very quickly, he kept making fun of the music and also started talking about destroying it.
1: So what we do every morning is we blow up a disco record that
5: we hate. This is Steve on the radio in 1979.
1: You're uh, ready to go in there, Shorty. Why don't you go ahead and uh, start it up?
5: Aww. He started doing this thing where every morning he would play a disco record. And then...
1: Oh, that blowed up real good. Blowed
5: up. Yeah, blowed up real good. And Steve says his intention with all this was just to be absurd. He'd get dressed up in funny outfits when he played shows with his band. I used to wear Hawaiian shirts. Uh, and some at some
1: point, that just switched over to uh, me wearing this uniform and the helmet.
5: Which he says was not intended to seem violent or militaristic... He says a veteran just handed it to him at a show once.
1: None of this is, uh, there's no master plan behind any of this. This is just all like, you
5: know, me just try to make a living. And his fans loved it. The crowds just started to get bigger. He held anti-disco events all over the city, all leading up to that White Sox game on July 12th. And when Steve looks back on that night, what he sees isn't a racist and homophobic riot, the way lots of people have in years since then. But rather, a big crowd of middle-class rock fans reacting against the phony Studio Fifty Four Saturday Night Fever scene,
1: saying, "Hey, we want to wear our, our t-shirts and our jeans, and we don't want to have to—we don't want to have to wear th- white three-piece suits to get laid."
5: And he says he didn't see the whole thing as a very big deal.
1: And there happened to be smoke and fire because they put too much of a charge in the in the box that blew up the records, and they had too many records in there. But you know, I—I uh, I don't really. Th- think that it was anything other than youthful exuberance
5: it feels hard for me to imagine that like people are going that crazy just because they don't like disco music like what what was going on do you think I get what burning you know uh, things looks like
1: you know burning records, burning books whatever it it looks I understand how in hindsight people say that it was racist and homophobic, especially based on the identity politics of the you know of the present day. But at the time,
5: I, it, it never occurred to me because that was really not the intent of it. You really didn't see that, that? That didn't sort of cross your mind like, oh, this might look like that? No, it absolutely it did not. Um, uh, if in, in, any,
1: any, most of the people who make that statement weren't around for the run-up to it. And uh, it was essentially just a harmless, you know, we were having some fun.
5: Now, Vince Lawrence, the usher we talked to earlier, was there for the run-up to that night. And to him, it was not fun. And the people that broke a Marvin Gaye record in his face didn't seem harmless. But Vince doesn't blame Steve Dahl for what happened to him that night. He even still listens to The Loop. He thinks what happened probably had as much to do with the place where the event was held as the event itself. Vince says the neighborhood around there had a certain reputation.
6: There were stories that, you better not get caught in Bridgeport after dark. Bridgeport is where the stadium was. There was a sandwich place called Rickabini's. And I was like, you know, you better not be running, going to Rickabini's after dark because that's on the edge of Bridgeport and you could get your ass
5: whooped. And this neighborhood is what brings us to the last turn in the story, where the place that killed Disco helps give birth to this whole other kind of music. Just a quick warning, this next part... Contains some strong language. Not long after that night at the stadium, something awful happened to Vince in Bridgeport. On my
6: birthday, I was coming home from school. I went to Lakeview High School. And occasionally I would end up taking the Wentworth bus, which put me in the neighborhood of Bridgeport. And um, a teenage boy driving a, I don't know, a pickup truck of some sort pulled up next to me and said, "Hey, the fuck are you doing here?" And I said, "I'm just I'm walking home." And they said, "No coons live in this neighborhood." And you better get the fuck out of here, nigger. And I just took off running. And they drove and they caught up with me and beat my face till it looked like a potato. And I went back to my friend's house and they called the police. And the police came They said, well, let's drive around and see if we can find them. And funny enough, first gas station, there's the truck and there's the guy who beat me up. And they arrested him. My mother got a call from this kid's lawyer saying, hey, we've got a court date that's going to come and we don't want to ruin this kid's life. We were hoping that you could forgive this guy. He made a mistake. He's really sorry. Can we work something out and get you guys to drop the charges? And I said, you know, I have photographs of what my face looked like that day. He didn't seem at all sorry. I think that I should go to the news and I should tell the news that what happened in the South is still happening in Chicago, in your neighborhood. He said, no, no, no. We don't we we we're trying to make peace with this. I understand that, you know, you were hurt and we wanna maybe pay you for your trouble. And the light bulb in my head just went off because remember, I was saving up for my first synthesizer. I knew the price list at Biasco Music by heart. And I very quickly added up what it was going to cost me to get my three favorite synthesizers. And I'm like, OK, well, if he doesn't want me to show up at court, it's going to cost him $6,500. <laughs> and um, we, settled, we settled for five <laughs> right then and there. First, I you know, actually needed to heal physically. And then after that, I wanted to get my mind right. I was so eager to put it behind me. And I thought that one way to forget about it would be to get on with my music making, which was the only thing I thought about all the time.
5: So that's what Vince did. He bought two synthesizers and he started writing songs.
6: I made a record not too long after that with my band Z-Factor. All made with synthesizers. With those very synthesizers, those very same synthesizers, I went on to make um, on and
5: on. That's this song. Vince made it with his friend, Jesse Saunders, and it is widely recognized as one of the very first songs in a whole new genre of music called House. House is a lot like disco. But stripped down. So,
6: everything that's good about disco, the driving beat, the passion, the energy, it's all there. Like, get rid of the big bands, the soaring lyrics, the string sections. We just like the part that was supposed to break down. Skip all that drama at the beginning, all the foreplay. I guess I would say that house is to disco as tang is to orange juice. It's got the flavor
5: of oranges just intensified and crammed into a little space.
4: It's this sort of evolution of disco.
5: Renee Graham again. As she started writing about music professionally, she watched this evolution from disco to house unfold.
4: The great, late great DJ, uh, Frankie Knuckles, you know, called house music, you know, disco's revenge.
5: Frankie Knuckles is known as the godfather
4: of house music. He
5: DJed at a black gay club in Chicago called The Warehouse, which is why it's called house music. As more and more artists started making this new music, you could see house start to fill in the space disco once occupied. Vince was too young to get into the warehouse, so he and his friends started throwing their own parties, these semi-legal, all-ages DJ parties at warehouses.
6: The energy was insane. It was incredible. You know, just just imagine, you put 1,500 17-year-old kids
5: in a room unattended with music. (laughs) And these parties started multiplying like crazy in Chicago and in other cities across the country. This is Love Can't Turn Around by Farley Jackmaster Funk, which is a really famous House song. But you probably haven't heard of it because House kind of stayed underground in the U.S., but by the mid-80s, it started its own disco-like crescendo into the mainstream. You start hearing stuff like this rhythmic song on the radio. You'd never call it disco or house, but it's built on both of them. And through the 80s and 90s, you hear the influence of this music Vince helped create and the disco that inspired it in pop music everywhere. This is Bowie in 1983. Janet Jackson in 86. Vogue by Madonna, built to make you dance. It's got the four on the floor beat from Disco, the synthesizers from House, and it sounds more like those two genres of music than anything else that came before Disco did. And Vince says if you look at the songs that top the charts now, it's still going. All of these new pop, mainstream songs that
6: are favorites of the the world over are built on disco records or built on house music kylie minogue can't get you out of my head justin bieber what do you mean
5: and we found love by rihanna and now some of the most popular artists in the world are djs and producers calvin harris diplo skrillex daft punk you can hear house and disco in all their music as they play stadiums in front of tens of thousands of people. So when Vince thinks back on what happened that night in July of 1979.
6: I would say if someone said disco died that night, wow, it's like, okay, um, dance music culture is bigger than it ever was. At one point, it was the favorite of a very small group of people, which Steve Dahl drew affectionate little circles around and scorned and ridiculed and now it's the music that everyone likes it's the music of our generation
5: hearing Vince say all this I found myself thinking like dance music is kind of right where disco was in 1979 so I asked Renee Graham the music writer from before are we like are we going to have another Disco Demolition Night? Is that Are we coming up on that?
4: You know, it's not like, you know, in the 70s you had only so many radio stations. So that's when it became a problem when people felt like, you know, they weren't hearing this song because they were again playing, you know, Casey and the Sunshine Band. You know, you're not going to have that now.
5: Because people just don't get music from a single source anymore because of Spotify and iTunes and Pandora and all the other ways you can get music.
4: You know, you can listen to music all day and never, ever hear Taylor Swift. You know, I mean, so I don't think there's going to be that kind of an issue where people feel like this thing has kind of taken over. You know, I don't necessarily think the world's more accepting of dance music. You know, I just think that there's a kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, the way music is now kind of segregated. You know, we won't I don't think we're going to have a, you know, a a dance music demolition night.
0: That was Disco Demolition Night, hosted by Pat Walters and produced by Pat Walters, Julia Witt, and Emmanuel Berry for the podcast Undone from Gimlet Media in partnership with Retro Report. It always surprises me how we talk about our bodies as though they're not attached to us below the neck. We all do it. Like our heads are one entity and our bodies are completely another not very compliant one. They never look the way we want, they don't have the skills we desire, and they don't always do as we say. This is especially true for John Roche and Lefty.
8: My body convults on the floor of the tiny bathroom. This was the most intense pain I'd ever felt. My scream subsided soon after I dropped to the tile, but the pain was only intensified. I landed face up with my left leg bent back under me. My back arched while my arms and right leg spread out, jamming themselves up against the wall to my right and the side of the bathtub to my left. It was the first time I had bent my leg in over 8 weeks. Up until a few days previous, my left leg was encased in a full length cast. Disuse atrophy. It caused the muscles in the leg to shrivel and harden. Bending it now meant muscles that hadn't contracted in all that time creaked like a taut length of old rope. My knee joint locked in a bent position at the leg of one of my toy action figures. There was no way it would spring back into a straight position under its own strength. I'd have to force it open like the jaws of a bear trap pain was all-encompassing. Why did I bend my leg if I knew it was way too soon to do so? Well, I didn't bend it, nor did anyone else. The left leg did it himself. I've got cerebral palsy. It's a neurological disorder caused by a lack of oxygen to the brain during childbirth. In my case, it's a little like a stroke, and like a stroke, it can affect one side of the body, but there are different levels of severity depending on how badly the brain gets damaged. Sometimes it can affect the whole body, facial movements or oral ability. I actually don't know much more about it other than that. That's pretty much how it was explained to me as a kid and I never felt the urge to dive deeper into it. There's no real cure as such, but physiotherapy and certain surgeries can help. How does it affect one side of the body exactly? Well, there's a breakdown in communication between your brain and your limbs. Physically, this manifests as reduced dexterity, muscle spasm, and involuntary movement. So it's all related to your brain and your central nervous system, but it feels like your leg has a mind of its own. My left leg's mind has a lot in common with the self-destructive, stubborn teenager. He's hell-bent on rebelling against anyone who tries to tell him what to do and he's happy to drag anything he's attached to down with him in the process. Lefty and I didn't get off to one of the best of starts. Back when I was learning my lefts from my rights, an easy way to remember one from the other was to think of my right leg, that was right, and my wrong leg, that was left. To this day, when giving someone directions, that's still how I remember left from right. As a toddler, I pretty much ignored Lefty, His insistence on freaking out or cramping up all the time prompted me to exclude him from the whole process of walking. I'd just hop around on righty instead. That was quicker and righty was happy to do it. Lefty did not like that. I could always rely on righty though. He was the strong silent type. He did what he was told and he never kicked up a fuss. I learned to lean on righty because his erratic brother couldn't be trusted to share the load. That infuriated Lefty even more. I knew I couldn't hop around forever. I'd end up stomping the life out of Righty. So I was forced to start letting Lefty contribute with some stuff, walking for starters. Sure he had a weird way of doing it, but it got us places. And Righty was always there, very patient and at the ready to step in and take control if Lefty had one of his tantrums. Lefty's outbursts would erupt at the most awkward moments. Keeping still during a visit to the barber's chair was an impossibility. When the buzz of the electric razor echoed in my ear, Lefty shot up under the gown, kicking clumps of freshly cut hair into the air and causing even the steadiest-handed hairdresser to veer off course. "Uh, whoops, the barber would say. You wanted the locks short, right? Lefty was also a genius at lulling me into a false sense of security. I'd be walking down the stairs, for example. Lefty may have appeared relaxed and compliant, so I might not even hold the handrail. Big mistake. If someone appeared at the foot of the stairs, Lefty would think, Time
3: for an impromptu goose step
8: demonstration, oi! He'd launch himself forward and lock his knee in an homage to the Ministry of Funny Walks. Inevitably, this sent me tumbling down the stairs. Are you okay? The innocent bystander would say. Oh yeah, uh, watch out for that dodgy step, I'd reply as I brushed myself off. Lefty loved an audience. Public spaces were where he could exert maximum damage. School classrooms were a favorite of his. This would change to work meeting rooms when I got older. If I was called upon to speak and I wasn't expecting it, Forget
1: that guy, look at me!
8: Lefty would announce by leaping into the air and slamming his knee into the underside of the desk. Ah, I think we should. I'd do my best to ignore the throbbing pain emanating from my knee and carry on with waterlogged eyes and girls. More specifically, intimate moments with girls. I'm not sure if Lefty didn't like these situations, or if he just got overexcited by them. Either way, they made for high risk engagements. Once, in secondary school, I was sitting on a park bench alone with a girl, and I had just worked up the courage to kiss her. Her hand slowly reached forward and rested on Lefty's knee. She had no idea what the consequences of her tender interaction would be and unfortunately, I was helpless to warn her. The horror! The fright of Lefty's sudden explosion sent her flying backwards and off the park bench. She landed on the grass a good metre away. I can still see the utter shock and confusion on her face. Something had to be done to improve Lefty's behaviour. My doctors agreed. Lefty had gone through three physiotherapists by the time I was 12 years old. None of them could reason with him. It got to the point where putting on my left shoe became a daily physical struggle. Lefty would scrunch up his toes into a ball, making it almost impossible to slip into a shoe. His most stubborn sit-down protests could only be broken by force.
3: I'm not going in that thing.
8: I'd shove his foot in my Dunn's imitation Nikes and aggressively lace them up as tight as I could. That should hold him for a while, I thought. The doctor's solution was incarceration. Lefty was sentenced to be encased in a plaster cast for no shorter than eight weeks. It was for his own good. This would calm him down. Give him a chance to rehabilitate, the doctors said. But Lefty wasn't going quietly. They had to knock me out with general anesthetic while they locked Lefty into position and cocooned him in plaster and gauze. When I came to, I was flat on my back. I flicked the sheet covering me over to survey the extent of Lefty's prison. My eyes started at the tips of Lefty's toes, the only part of him that remained exposed. I followed the white mottled surface as it extended past Lefty's knee, up his thigh and past my waist. It came to an abrupt terminus above my belly button. Then I followed the cast as it spread to the right. It wrapped around my waist and descended halfway down my right thigh. Sitting upright wasn't going to be possible for a while. Initially there wasn't a peep out of Lefty which surprised everyone, most of all me. Unfortunately, this didn't last long. As soon as the Diazepam wore off, Lefty's rage was unleashed. Lefty spasmed, cramped and banged against the walls of his cell, but he didn't have enough space to build up enough momentum to really hurt himself. This was similar to how I remember the late Steve Irwin who would transport aggressive crocodiles. He'd lead the croc into a long, thin, wooden box where she didn't have enough room to thrash her large head around, thus saving her from self harm But Lefty still had one incredibly effective way of showing his anger. He'd curl up his toes with such force that they turned white. The only way to calm Lefty was more diazepam. As the weeks rolled on, Lefty's outbursts gradually diminished until they almost stopped completely. Had Lefty finally given up, Had this wild bucking bronco been broken? When the cast came off, it revealed a visibly different lefty. Muscle atrophy had taken its course. Lefty was a lot thinner and weaker. His foot was fixed in a better position, but he was still partial to spasm. Nothing was ever going to change that. Building him back up again was a glacially slow and tedious process. Every day he'd attempt to bend his knee a degree or two farther than the last. On several occasions, in his eagerness to jump ahead, he'd break into a rapid spasm and bend his knee too far, which caused the hardened muscle tissue to break up. Some days it was one step forward, two steps back, but eventually his full range of motion was restored. After that ordeal, I wasn't sure how much good it actually did or whether it was worth it, but the main thing was that it was over. However, my doctors knew better. They continued to periodically monitor my journey into adolescence. When I was about 13, an elderly doctor with an unabashed Comover broke the news to me. Lefty's generally uptight nature and his staccato movement meant that his muscles were shorter and less developed than Righty's. Dr Comover was worried that when my growth spurts kicked in, Righty would race ahead in his development, leaving Lefty, his slower brother, far behind. This would result in quite a length disparity between them, effectively leaving me lopsided. If I didn't want to walk around in circles for the rest of my life, then something drastic had to be done, and quickly. The doctors had two possible approaches. The first option was to force Lefty to grow at a faster rate. How do you do that? Steroids? Growth hormone injections? Or stick him on a medieval torture rack and stretch him? Well, that last suggestion wasn't actually that far off. They could bore some holes into Lefty's bones, affix a surrounding cage structure, and gradually attach tenser and tenser springs to stretch Lefty out. I knew exactly how Lefty would react to that suggestion.
5: Oh, fuck that. will make your life a living hell if you do that to me.
8: The doctors seemed to agree with Lefty. Option two it was then, but it seemed incredibly unfair in my opinion. Instead of stretching Lefty, they would just slow down righty. This could be achieved by purposefully breaking righty's bones in several key places to stall for time. The extra attention required by righty to heal would give lefty enough time to catch up. That was the theory anyway.
0: Yeah, that sounds a lot better, all right.
8: Dr. Comover made a point of telling me one weird fact he thought amusing. He said that as a result of the procedure, I would grow up to be a few inches shorter than an alternative version of myself, who didn't have his right leg broken in several places. The thought of this still occupies my mind from time to time. How much better off is the alternative me with his extra few inches? Was reaching cupboards easier for him? Did he ride more roller coasters? Did he join the Air Force? He probably has to hop everywhere though, so it swings in roundabouts. I was not happy about giving up the support of righty for a while but I was confident that the recovery process would be a lot more straightforward than what I'd experienced with Lefty. So Righty took one for the team and did it in his usual stoic style. He saw his time wrapped in a cast with minimal fuss and without any drugs.
1: Oh, what a goody two shoes.
8: The ordeal left Righty scarred, a permanent reminder of the sacrifice he made for his difficult brother. But that wouldn't be the last time Righty would jump to Lefty's aid. I had just turned fourteen and once again I found myself being presented for inspection by Dr. Comover and his growing group of minions. I paraded up and down the room for them. One more time please, Comover said, for the fourth time. He mumbled words into his dictaphone every few seconds, his short sentences punctuated by the clunk of the stop button. Well fella, I think we're nearly there, he said. We just need to set the left leg again. One more time. Oh no! Lefty was cocooned again, locked back in his familiar prison, like a serial offender. And he had no intention of trying to get out early on good behaviour. We endured his full sentence. Six weeks later, he was up for release. I hopped into the doctor's office, jumped up on the bed and lay flat on my back. This was all very easy, because Lefty's six-week internment totally pacified him. I had become quite accustomed to dragging a large cast around with the help of a pair of crutches. A fresh-faced doctor, who I'd never met before, would be the one removing the cast. Now, I'm going to be using this saw today. It makes a loud noise, but it doesn't hurt a bit. Look! He demonstrated by running the blade of the miniature circular saw along the palm of his hand. See? It only cuts casts. He probably wondered why his little saw demonstration didn't instantly put me at ease. This usually did the trick. He obviously didn't realize that his scary saw was the least of my worries. So I tried to warn him about Lefty's outbursts. Don't worry about a thing, he said, cutting me off. You're in good hands. The sound of the saw dulled as it sunk deep into the cast, tipping against Lefty's skin underneath. The spinning blade moved slowly down the length of my outer leg. Once that was done, the saw opened up a seam down the length of the inner side. All done with the cutting now, the doctor proudly emphasised. Still not seeing any visible relief in his patient, he pulled at the freshly cut top section of the cast. It broke away after a couple of hearty tugs. The whole front of Lefty was now exposed to the fresh air. I could feel him beginning to twitch. Then the doctor pulled the remaining back section away. The doctor prodded random areas of Lefty with his fingers. Can you feel that? he questioned. Lefty started to shudder. I could feel him building up under me like a bull getting ready to buck his unwanted rider. Nearly done, he said. Just try to... and then he said it. The one word that was sure to set Lefty off. Relax. Suddenly Righty sprang up and swivelled to the left like a tower crane in high winds. He threw himself on Lefty and pushed down hard with all the force he could muster. Lefty convulsed frantically, but he was no match for Righty's strength. The doctor let out a loud yelping sound. His hand was sandwiched between Lefty and Righty. Ah, uh, can I just get my hand out? Please try to relax, he pleaded. But that only caused Righty to bear down with more force. Until crack went the muffled sound of the doctor's little finger as it broke. Righty eased off just enough for the doctor to free his hand. I'm so sorry, I shouted. It's fine, it's uh, it's fine, he said, trying to disguise his obvious discomfort. I'm gonna let the nurse finish up here. I have to go, and he rushed out of the room cradling his hand. So Righty, the reliable, rule-abiding Righty, had caused grievous bodily harm. Lefty never came close to anything like that. In some ways I respected Righty's eagerness to prevent another bathroom floor incident, so I was willing to let him off on this extenuating circumstance. As the years passed, Lefty mellowed. Somewhat. He's still prone to the odd outburst, but for the most part, Righty and I can see them coming. His turns are more like sulks than tantrums now. Uh, Sometimes he'll refuse to move, the same way a dog who doesn't want to be walked will stop dead in the street. We have to just pull him along until he begrudgingly complies. That's just how he is. And he's not going anywhere. So we all just have to take it one step at a time.
0: That was Lefty by John Roche for his podcast, Yarn. There is no shortage of great yarns out there, and we encourage you to listen to as many as possible. If you don't know where to start, check out our website, thirdcoastfestival.org because there we have thousands of fantastic stories curated especially for you. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxey. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya goldberg safer Juan Pablo Ramirez-Franco is our production intern. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for Resound comes from Emma, a web based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menachee Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound, all diamonds, no rough.